Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. All right, Jonathan Kay is my guest. I appreciate your time, Jonathan. Thanks for getting into the Jim Fannin show. And I've been following you. What's up with Tabitha Soothy? <laughs> she she got it in for Jonathan K or what? I see. Well, not much of a spat, but man, I, I don't know the woman. I've you know I'm friends with her on Facebook. Quote friends with her on Facebook, but oh, there is so much hate out there, man. With all the issues facing us today, you'd think we'd have better things to fight about. So I'm going to start with an apology if the audio quality is poor because I um I'm I well <laughs> I uh, I'm never particularly clear in the best of circumstances, but uh, I'm speaking to you from outdoors. In terms of Tabitha Saudi, I think that's how her name is pronounced. I've never met her, and um, I hadn't actually heard of her until she started tweeting fairly vicious things about my my mother, who is also a a writer and a a long-standing columnist with the National Post. And uh, someone said, oh, there's this woman, I think she lives in Toronto, and she's tweeting all this, this bizarre, vicious stuff about your mother. And um, I think, and she was formerly a Globe and Mail columnist, I think, um, which is, is how I think her name was familiar to me, though I don't think I'd ever read her stuff. And then, yeah, her, her Twitter account was just this kind of like stream of consciousness rant against people she didn't like. And she seemed to have some strange emotional hatred um, toward me and my mother, and she'd often link us in these weird ways. Um, it's sort of like a elementary school thing where it was like, you know, people would make fun of your mothers or your fathers or like just these weird taunts. And she attracted, in her heyday, which I guess was like a year or two ago, Tabitha attracted this, like, I don't know how, what to call it. It was, it was like a group of people who just sort of went in for this kind of real, like, gutter trolling on Twitter, and um, I think the switch to 280 characters on Twitter sort of marginalized them a bit, and I think a lot of them flamed out, because some of them, I guess, got suspended. They were just really vicious, and Tabitha herself hasn't tweeted about me in the last few months. Um, Someone told me that her employer had a word with her or something. I have no idea. I don't know the gossip. Like I said, I don't know her. I've never met her. Unbelievable. Um, the the hate that can spew from and, and I, I suffer from it as well. You know, you get to a point where you're you start asking yourself the question, I don't even know this person. How can I have such strong dislike and, and such hateful feelings for them? And I think I mean we're all we're all prone to it, I think, and, and social media exasperated it. Uh, I just looked at a post that of hers is September twelfth. Uh, where you were talking about a bike accident and a writing that went downhill or something. Well, someone, so someone told me, uh, again, I'm just going to repeat for the third time, I've never met her, uh, And but there's all these theories on, on Twitter and sort of just in Canadian media circles more generally, like what happened to her. Uh, because at one point, my understanding is that she was, she was regarded as, um, I don't know if she was a first-tier columnist, but she was seen as like a funny, I think, she was marketed as a, a humor columnist. And uh, if you look at her stuff now, it's some of it kind of purports to be comedy, but it's, it's always like sort of fairly predictable jokes about the same three or four people, like Easy Targets, like Ezra Levant and Doug Ford. Um, and I, the gossip is that something happened to her. And, and someone told me that she had some kind of bike accident, which, uh, which is terrible, by the way. I, you know, I'm just, People die from bike accidents and get terribly injured. And I, if that actually did happen, I feel awful for her. But that apparently, since that time, she hasn't been the same writer, and um, and that coincided with this this strange and un- unsettling turn um, on social media that she's exhibited. I don't know the truth of it, um, but a lot of people have told me that she did have some kind of personal thing. And I and I tweeted about this that you never know quite how to respond in situations like that because you you often do feel sorry for these people. Like some of the most vicious people on social media often are people who, who have had terrible things happen to them in their personal lives or they've had downturns in their professional lives. Uh, and Tabitha has had one or two of those. And and you, you feel bad for them. Like it's, But then they express that misfortune by by really acting out on, on social media. Um, 
and making pests of themselves or worse, and then you respond to them the way you would respond to any pest. Um, so it's 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 unpleasant all around. And uh, like I said, I think she she hasn't gone after me or my mother the last few months. Uh, but yeah, for a while there, it was just it was strange. She actually has only written I think one or two columns in the last three or four months too. I she may be taking a break from from writing more generally. I like I have no idea. Not taking a break from uh, social media, obviously. Do you find yourself getting dragged into these, uh, dragged in by these trolls, for lack of a better word, uh, and, and into t- Twitter scraps where you where you find yourself defending yourself or or or, or conversing with uh, anon accounts that are just obviously off the rocker? Uh, less so now. Okay. Um, Did you have the to last make a couple of months because trolling often seems like sort of a random thing. Um, but I've, I've spoken to enough people who have dealt with it that, um, that I realize it's not quite as random as, as people think. There, there's often sort of, um, I mean, it's not formally organized, but there are often like prominent level boss trolls who, um, you know, they'll go after somebody and then, you know, the beta trolls will follow kind of hoping right. to name, make a name for themselves and, uh, and people kind of go around swarming other people based on the signals they're getting from other trolls and also based on the sense of vulnerability of their target. So what's interesting is that the people who often get targeted by left-wing trolls are often themselves left-wing because it's seen, they're seen as especially vulnerable to this kind of, of pressure. So if you work at a left-wing activist group or, you know, you're, I don't know, you work at Harper's Magazine or Mother Jones or, you know, uh, Rabble or something like that, you're seen as vulnerable because your colleagues are going to expect you to toe a certain ideological party line. And if the trolls can can call you out in front of your like-minded colleagues, it's going to make your life difficult. Interestingly, the left often doesn't troll the right and the right often doesn't troll the left because uh, they, they have less power when they cross ideological lines. The most effective trolling takes place within ideological bubbles, where, with people calling each other out for minor heresies uh, within those bubbles. And how do you describe yourself ideologically or politically? Where do you fall on the spectrum as far as right-left goes? Well, I think I'm somebody who, who nobody wants to claim because I'm pretty heterodox. And these days, people are known by their heresies, so... You know, if I dared to call myself a conservative, um, I'd be thrown out of the club immediately because, you know, I'm pro-choice and uh, I'm disgusted by Donald Trump. And, you know, on 50 different issues, I, I'm, I'm an abomination to, to conservative purists. But I think the same is true, certainly true on the left. Um, you know, I, uh, and <laughs> my problem is, as, as you know, I used to work at a magazine that was like fairly doctrinaire left-wing publication. And the trolling I received didn't come from the right. As I say, it came from the left because the, expecta- the, the not unreasonable expectation was that you have this magazine, it's left-wing, so you should have an editor-in-chief who is extremely doctrinaire on issues like, uh, you know, take your pick, you know, income inequality, cultural appropriation, um, uh, anything to do with uh, policing language on campus, that sort of thing. And I, I wasn't doctrinaire. And, uh, and so I didn't get trolled from the right. I got trolled from the left. Because you weren't left enough? I just got kind of randomly trolled on both sides for a few months. Mm-hmm. Although the last six months or so, I don't get trolled by many people. It's actually been sort of a, a pretty good existence. Um, you kind of just have to show that you're not going to be influenced by it. The people who get trolled are the people who show that they're going to give in to trolling. Um, and so when I get trolled, I just, I just usually just ignore them. Sometimes I push back if I think I have something... Uh, you know, trenchant or, or funny to say. Um, but you can't, if, if you respond to everybody, you'll just attract more trolls because you're kind of like a slot machine that pays out, right? It's like, oh, let's troll this guy. He's going to respond. And people, are, you know, if, if you're someone who has 200 followers and you're trolling somebody who has 20 or 30 or 40,000 followers, uh, it, it always plays to the advantage of the more obscure person on social media since, um, you know, they're the one getting signal boosted, right? Not the right. The, the object of the drone. Do you find that the left is kind of eating their own now? Like, I mean, it sounds like they're coming after you because you weren't left enough. And I know you, 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 
stepped down from that role there and for you know and i hate to hear or read that someone is self-censoring but it sounds like that became a frustration for you oh well it did and um i mean to give to give fair credit to the people who are who are my critics like it is true that the, you know the walrus was that's the publication i worked uh you know sort of a hard left publication on pretty much every issue and here you had this guy, me, who was fairly heterodox, and um, I think there were a lot of people, and not necessarily people who read the publication, but the sort of people who kind of spend all their time monitoring pronouns and, um, you know, do you have the right skin color to write this kind of novel? Like, they looked at the walrus and said, hey, what's up here? You guys are supposed to toe the line on all these dogmas, and you've got this guy, John Kay, who's, who's saying all these crazy things. Like, it, according to the rules we now live by, uh, I, I don't live by them, but a lot of people in the academic and literary and activist communities do. I was a very, very much an odd fit for that, and it was only a matter of time till I got frustrated and quit. Um, uh, so, like the, the people who were hectoring me, they like they were the ones who were in touch with the world we live in. I was the one who was out of touch. Uh, I mean, fortunately, I found a publication that I now work for that um, they don't—they're heterodox themselves, and they. They don't particularly care what opinions I have on on every subject under the sun. So, so I found a good fit for myself, uh, and you know the walrus went its way, and I went mine. Tell us a little bit about Quillette and the new media out there. I mean, I, you know, you, you talked about Trump and what a well, I'll, I'll say it, he's a bit of a buffoon, and he kind of disgusts all of us all the time. Uh, he has taught me a lot of lessons. One, I think I can spot a narcissist much. Uh, uh, very easily now, or before I was kind of not familiar with it. Uh, also, uh, he's driven a divide between the left and right that's, uh, I, I think it's happening more and more all, all over the place, even in Canada. The left and right, it seems like the divide's getting further uh, wider between the left and right. But also, I think what we fail to realize and acknowledge is that the extremes are the ones with the loudest voice or, or a voice now, where, and I think I heard you talk about this with uh on your on your own podcast the silent majority middle you know the 95 percent, 97 percent of us that are in the middle that have overlapping beliefs that just want to get along they're too busy to even look at politics uh, they're silent meanwhile eh, or, eh, they're turning to both sides the left and the right and saying would you guys shut the hell up like it's really the extremes that are that are really driving the conversation it seems these days so i think you're right um, and one thing I should say is that the phenomenon you just described is taking place in a, in a microcosm form within every culture and every subculture. And one example I think that's prominent now is the, the transgender community, mm. where I do think that probably 90 or 95 percent of transgender people, they, they just want to go to work and raise kids and sort of do their thing right. uh, the way people are. But then if you go on social media, Twitter, I mean, Twitter is not representative of humanity, but the the, the, the activists you see on, on Twitter in every community, you know, Zionists, anti-Zionists, communists, whatever, they're always going to be the most extreme vocal uh, faction. And so if you went on Twitter and you just looked at the most prominent transgender activists, you would think that the transgender community right. is a bunch of assholes. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're just, you know, most of them are just like you and me yeah. uh, or, or anybody. But in the same way that if you looked at the most prominent, uh, you know, Zionists, you think, oh, Zionists are assholes. And if you look at the, the, the most prominent uh, pro-Palestinian rights people, you think, oh, God, they're assholes. Too. Because those are the people who are most inclined to spend eight hours a day on Twitter screaming at people. And, um, you know, most... I know some transgender people I, uh, there's one trans person I, I work very closely with on, on a literary project and these are not people who spend their days on Twitter uh, screaming about pronouns uh, right. you know they they have their pronouns and uh, you know they, they might correct you politely if you use the wrong one but aside from that they you know they're worried about paying their mortgages they're worried about um, you know how many carbs they're eating all day like they're yeah. just worried about the same banal things you and I are uh, are interested in. So, so mm -hmm. this plays out within cultures and subcultures all across the board. The other thing uh, about Trump, it is true that Trump has, has created this, this really unhealthy situation on the right where conservatism often has been 
uh, thrown under the bus in favor of just crass populism. Uh, the Republican Party in the United States, obviously, this is, this is happening. But the opposite phenomenon is that when Trump won the election in late 2016, November 2016, uh, it really it traumatized the left in such a way that the left circled the wagons and created all sorts of purity tests for itself. Because not unreasonably, leftists said, "Look, this is, you know we're in a state of siege. We've got this guy in the White House who's just an an open bigot. Um, he's a misogynist. He does all sorts of horrible, horrible things. So we've got to get our act together, and we've got to impose some discipline on our ranks." And I did notice that the election of Trump coincided with with the breakdown in social relationship between me and some of my my friends who were leftists, who formerly we'd gotten along quite well, um, but suddenly I wasn't left enough for them. Mm. And um, and I think within their subculture, it was decided that, you know, unless you believe the following 47 things, you're not going to be an effective foot soldier in the battle against Trumpism. And so I might only believe in 40 or 45 of those 47 things, but it was always the other one or two or five that we were arguing about. And... Um, in that environment, it became you're either with us or against us. And the left mocked George W. Bush when when he mm. said a week after 9/11, or maybe it's 10 days, just, you're either with us or against us in the fight against terrorism. That was seen as this really simple-minded, um, Manichaean thing to say. Mm. But I think tribalism, being what it is, whenever people feel under threat on all sides of the spectrum, they say the same thing. And um, unfortunately, that's kind of been the dominant theme in, in the conversation on the left over the last two years. Tribalism, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. I want to hit on that as well. But let's get back to, uh, I mean, Trump, for me, also has kind of shone a big, bri- uh, bri- big bright spotlight on uh, media bias. I, I don't think I was as in tune as I am now. Uh, now when I turn on CNN, it's like, come on, MSNBC, even CBC, you know, they do a better job disguising it, I think. But talk to me a little bit about the bias in media. I mean, it, it seems like you're either one or the other. You're either left or right. And that's what I like about Quillette. They, they seem to not be jumping into that political fray. They're just having, you know, long-form discussions, essays almost, uh, you know, where you wouldn't read in a normal magazine because of the the word content as far as numbers go. But talk to me about your frustration and the media bias that you see out there. So, media bias. Um, if you look at CBC as Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, if somebody's outside Canada and doesn't know what the CBC is, the bias comes from the people they recruit. And the people they recruit are, are you know, they're not bad people. Like I, you know, the average CBC staffer, uh, junior staffer is probably... I don't, they went to Ryerson University. They studied journalism or English or uh, liberal arts of some kind, or they went to York and um, Concordia and Montreal, or something like that. And they're they're they tend to be urban, middle class or upper middle class liberal arts graduates, uh, extremely well versed in social media. They they are thoroughly marinated in um, the political culture that their friends and former classmates uh, promote on Facebook groups and, well, Facebook is probably, they don't use Facebook maybe, but uh, any social media, whether it's Reddit or Twitter or whatnot, and they have, they embrace a sort of groupthink, a sort of hive mind um, on most issues. And these are the people who are chase producers and uh, assistant producers on most of the shows, uh, not just on CBC, but, you know, probably CTV. Uh, They're the recruits who come into the, the newsrooms of places like the Star and the Globe. And the National Post, even though it's a conservative newspaper, I noticed that some of the younger voices there are swing left. And there's nothing wrong with being a leftist when you're when you're young. Like everybody should be a leftist when they're 22. Well, isn't that the the saying I heard recently? If you don't vote left when you're young, you have no heart. If you don't vote right when you're uh, grown up, you have no brain. There's there's, there's <laughs> variations on that expression, but broadly speaking, it's true. Like you know, most people become more conservative when they have a mortgage and they have kids and. Right. They, they start worrying about you know crime in their neighborhood and you know those those kids at the mall and that sort of thing. Um, so my sense is that if you go into a newsroom, uh, the best thing you can do is, is have a diversity of ages, a diversity of um, well you know the usual diversity, you know, racial, right. 
gender diversity, all that sort of thing. But it's also just good to have lots of people who are, you know, they live in the suburbs, they have mortgages, they, um, you know, they aren't necessarily uh, single kids living in condo condos in downtown Vancouver or, or Toronto. And the Canadian media, part of the problem is that, like in other countries, there's just this whole swath of, of middle-tier employees who got laid off because the industry is shrinking. So more and more, um, you know, there'll be these, it's these older white people in their 50s and 60s, and maybe even 70s sometimes, who are just desperately trying to hold on to their jobs and be relevant. And then the whole middle tier has gotten wiped out, and then you've got these armies of 20-somethings who are just, they, they kind of subscribe to the same uh, liberal left-wing groupthink ideas, which, as I say, is fine when you're that age, but it's not being balanced by anything else. So uh, in editorial meetings, uh, you know, I saw this when I was at the Walrus, is that, you know, I'd be in a room of, of 10 people. Sometimes I was the only one in that room who had kids, and I was the only one in that room who was paying a mortgage. Um, and so... Uh, the people I was talking with just had the inherent um, political attitudes that come with essentially still being in a campus mindset. Uh, and all their friends were either writers or activists or you know, members of the literati in some way. And they had political attitudes to match, which is fine, except those aren't the political attitudes of 90% of Canadians. And so when somebody like Doug Ford gets elected, they react with shock because... All of their friends think Doug Ford is a poon. I mean, I'm not crazy about Doug Ford. Lots of weird attitudes and, and political views. Um, but I, when he was elected, I kind of understood why he was elected. Whereas I think for a lot of people in the Canadian media, certainly at the CBC, it's just it does not compute. Much in the way that uh, blue state intellectuals couldn't figure out the appeal of Donald Trump. You figure that this is just the pendulum, uh, the political pendulum swinging. I mean, we've had left for so long in Ontario here. I think a lot of people were obviously tired with wins shenanigans, enough to throw them out and give the conservatives uh, a majority. Uh, down in the states, it's a lo little different, but it isn't. Do you think it's just a symptom of politics? You have an unaccountable majority government that gets their way on everything, takes us way far to the left and sex ed and all kinds of things, and then. People just get tired with it, and then the uh, the the uh, the what am I looking for? The uh, the remedy for that is just to vote in a majority government of the other political side. I, I think there's a, there's two phenomena at play here. One is the the completely normal time honored phenomenon of, of of after ten or fifteen years, you just throw the bums out. Right. Uh, governments get stale. We saw this with Cretchen and Paul Martin. Uh, we saw it with um, Dalton. Well, Dalton McGinty left, but his, his liberal government survived. Uh, right. you, you see this at all levels of government. You saw it. I mean, you saw it with Mulroney. You saw it with Pierre Trudeau. Um, you saw, I think, with Stephen Harper, uh, Jean Charest in, in Quebec. Like, is this after two or three election cycles, people are like, okay, you know. And, and that's healthy because uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the sponsorship scandal here in Canada. Uh, it was like 20 years ago, I guess, when you just have political parties that are entrenched in power for a long time and they begin to conflate the interests of their party with the interests of the nation as a whole. And, and that's where the win liberals were. They just, it was time for them to leave. And for reasons that even if ideology and policy took that out of the equation, Political parties that get too cozy in power, they, you know, all their brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law have jobs and agencies and, um, you know, they have cozy contacts with the media. Like, you, you, have to, you have to refresh that. Democracy requires that that gets refreshed periodically. The other factor is that Wynne made the strategic decision that she was going to outflank the, uh, the NDP, which is uh, our, our left-wing party here mm -hmm. in Canada, um, both provincially and federally, that she was going to outflank them on the left. And so when I was talking to, to just ordinary people, friends in my neighborhood, um, parents of my kids' classmates, their big complaint was that their kids would go to school and increasingly it was all about pronouns and gender fluidity and uh, endless indigenous um, uh, land acknowledgements and you know, stuff about residential schools, all of which, like these subjects aren't, they're important subjects, but there was just so much virtue signaling 
and hard left posturing on these issues that uh, that parents of kids in particular found that it was getting ridiculous. And uh, I don't think these are issues that they necessarily feel comfortable talking to pollsters about when people call them for political surveys. But I know it's something that, at least in my my neighborhood, uh, which is a left-wing neighborhood, people are just getting increasingly frustrated with it. And they, they thought that Ontario's government increasingly was focusing uh, on fairly unimportant uh, issues that allowed the government to posture to a sort of hardcore of, of heavily politicized uh, activists and supporters on social media. And, um, and I think Justin Trudeau federally is at risk of going down the same road. John Kay is my guest. He is uh, the co-host of Wrong Speak. Uh, do you find yourself self-censoring still, Jonathan? And if no. you're not <laughs> at all? So much so that I'm going to cut you off and just say what I, what I think <laughs> even before you. Yeah, no, I, um, look, when I quit my last, my previous job, uh, which is at, at the Walrus, Walrus, I guess it was maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I just, I, um, I mean, I was in a position where, you know, I didn't, you know, I've been fairly lucky with, with things and I didn't necessarily have to work, um, at least not immediately. But I, I promised myself that, that the next job I had, it would be, um, I, I would not have to censor a single syllable of, of my speech, my views, and and I said I'm going to I'm going to wait until I find the job that allows me to do that. Uh, and then I guess about a year later, I started writing for this publication, which I'd never heard of. I mean, it only started in 2015. It's Quillette, and uh, and I loved it. I loved writing for it, and I'd written about three or four articles for it. And then I I think I just emailed them and said. Like, do you guys have anyone in Canada? You, you know, this, you're based in Australia, and you've got a guy in London. And, uh, you know, can I pitch in? And at first, it was sort of informal, and I started editing for them and recruiting writers. And we were it was sort of like, um, uh, I guess you could say, an audition okay. for, on both sides. And I loved the experience. And uh, now I uh, full time full time editor there. Uh, I still I've got three commissioned book projects going on and I do wrong speak and um, a few other side projects that I enjoy doing. Um, I'm big into board games, writing a book about board games. It's my passion. Uh, but, but Quillette is really, if it, Quillette helped restore my faith in journalism because uh, it's not pro Trump. It's not like, you know, there's no white nationalism or alt right bullshit. There's none of that stuff. I have no tolerance for that stuff. It's just classic liberalism. Some people call it conservative. I actually don't care what people call it. Um, well, you must be getting alt-right quite a bit. Well, alt-right has become just this term people throw around to when they disagree. things they don't like. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, shortly, shortly after I left the Walrus, the, the Walrus got itself in trouble because they published uh, an article by a really smart guy who I respect. His name is Ira Wells, and he's... Um, I mean, he's left of me politically, but he teaches at University of Toronto. Just a super smart guy. Actually, lives in my neighborhood. Just like nice guy, moderate. And Ira made this like one mistake in this article he wrote for Walrus about Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And he and I think forget exactly the context, but he he used the term alt right to describe Jordan Peterson. And he he stays out of. I mean, he goes out of his way not to be political. He's a psychologist for crying out loud. Right, like you know, when is the last you know Jordan Peterson did not you know smash the table and say you know we have to build a wall and we have to be proud of the white race? Like I mean, it, you know, you put you put him and Steve Bannon in a room together, and um, <laughs> it's not exactly like they're carbon copies. Anyway, um, at most organization journalistic organizations where you have you know ideological diversity. You would have people in the room who knew the different flavors of classical liberalism or conservatism mm -hmm. and who would look at that article in draft form and say, hey, this is a good article, but, you know, that, that term all right, that doesn't, that sticks out like a sore thumb. Just, you know, replace it with, you know, controversial, classically liberal, um, you know, pro-enlightenment. There's, there's a dozen other terms you could use. He's, Jordan Peterson is not all right. And I'm old enough to remember when there were other terms that were just thrown around in this very clumsy way. Um, you know, it used to be everything was racist. 
everything was fascist. Mm. Everything was everything was reactionary. Um, you know, in, in George W. Bush's times, people talked about the theocons, or they talked about the Vulcans. Uh, you know, the warmongering conservatives uh, that George W. Bush uh, was surrounded with. So these these terms of abuse, um, they go in and out of fashion, but one one way you know they're in fashion is when they just become a sort of generalized synonym for, oh, that's a view I don't like. And, right. and, and that's, that's what happened with all right. How about hate speech? Well, hate, you know, it's interesting because Canada has a hate speech law. Uh, it's section 319 of our criminal code. And, um, it has been invoked very seldom, right. and the people and the people it has been invoked against are people like Jim Keekstra. Um, you know, there was a, a guy in Saskatchewan; his name escapes me. Um, you know, they tend to be real hard-boiled hate mongers. And if you read the language of Section 319 of the Criminal Code, which prohibits hate speech, it's really, really strict about how it defines it. And on top of that, from a procedural point of view. Uh, I think if, if I remember correctly, it requires the personal intervention of the attorney general to initiate a, um, a prosecution. Mm. So that's why there have been so uh, David Ahenicu was the guy's name, right. uh, the Saskatchewan guy, the real, real hard-boiled hate mongers. I actually don't have that much of a problem with something like that. Um, if, if the attorney general himself or herself has to get involved to initiate a prosecution for hate speech. Um, you know, I can put up with that. I'm not so much of a free speech libertarian that I can't live with that. Uh, but the problem no longer is top-down censorships or hate speech laws. You know, 10 years ago, Canada went through a phase where people like Ezra Levant and Mark Stein were fighting against human rights tribunals, which were censoring people. And and I, I supported their campaign to some extent, Um because that, that was the threat to free speech. It was this, the top-down threat of the government saying, you can say this, but you can't say that. It's no longer the threat. The, the threat now is uh, what I call crowdsourced censorship, where people within professional subcultures essentially crowdsource the censorship of one another through social media. So uh, if you are an academic in a certain sphere, or you're a poet, or you're... Uh, a novelist in Canada. I mean, Canada is a particularly bad example because it's it's the entire industry and literature and academia um, is is such a creature of government funding, and it's such a small sandbox in a lot of these fields that you know, there might only be half a dozen people who are able to police the entire subculture through their Twitter accounts. And there's no direct government censorship. It's essentially people censoring one another through through social pressure in the same way that that high school students police uh you know what kind of clothes you're allowed to wear by by hectoring or teasing or ostracizing people who don't wear the right kind of sneakers that's that's essentially what's happening in a lot of these subcultures don't you think it's moved to a point where i mean uh... I consider hate speech when you say, you know what, well, go out and kill this person type of thing. I, I'm not sure that, and I can't, I can't resolve this words are violence thing uh, that we're falling into now. You misgender somebody, it's hate speech. You, you talk about sexual differences between men and women, hate speech. You talk about the different personality types that, that separate left and right in the political spectrum, hate speech. Like, it's just all-encompassing now, and like you said earlier, it's almost like if you disagree with me, then you're hateful. Uh, first of all, you'll have to forgive the, the barking sound in the background of my dog. Um, <laughs> it's not it's not anyone responding negatively to, to the violence of your words. <laughs> it's um, so there was um, an, a, a, a very influential magazine article that came out. I think it was in 2015, and it subsequently came, it became a book. Um, I think it was maybe this year. Um, I think it was called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, I may be getting the title wrong. But the thesis was that a lot of the what you're describing, which is the idea that, you know, we're, the opinions you disagree with are akin to violence, that that this is a, is a psychological phenomenon which is rooted in the way we bring up kids today and also in the way kids are treated on university campuses. 
um, university campuses to a certain extent have been taken over by um, marketing and um, uh, marketing departments and business consultants who essentially treat uh, students as customers and the experience of going to university is a customer service experience and the customer is always right and if a customer comes to you and, sa and says um, I really feel um, uh, traumatized because my my gender studies teacher um, showed us this video and there were no trigger warnings even though the, you, know, you know pick any <laughs> any of the s satirical examples that uh, that people have been talking about for the last few years 10 years ago no one, or 20 years ago no one would have taken that seriously but now they take it seriously because the students are seen as customers they're, they're, they're not seen as people who are there to be educated they're, they're seen as, as people who are there to get value dollar signs and yeah and um and as a result um the, the administrators respond in the same way the manager at mcdonald's responds when you say you know what this this big mac just doesn't taste right um the manager at mcdonald's is never going to say to you oh well you know aren't we picky like mm. the manager at mcdonald's gonna say i'm so sorry let me get you another one customer's and, always right so go ahead customer's always right the customer's always right which is which is great when you go to mcdonald's but if you've got kids who have grown up in that environment, um, like I don't think it's a coincidence that, as other people have pointed out, the schools where political correctness is, is most out of control tend to be the schools where you've got the most privileged, coddled sets of students. Um, like, you know, at Yale University, that, that, that insane outburst took place, I think it was 2015, where... Uh, you know, thousands of students became um, traumatized because uh, a professor had the temerity to send out an email that said, uh, hey, you know, maybe students don't need guidance in what Halloween costumes they wear. They can make up their own minds. And if, you know, someone someone is Scottish and wears a sombrero, it's not the end of the world. And and, and the whole campus went nuts. Or at Evergreen, uh, Evergreen State College uh, out in, in Washington a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I guess. You actually had one professor, Brett Weinstein, who um, <laughs> he had to flee the campus. And, and this is a leftist. You know, this he's a, yeah. I, think he, I think he's a biologist. He literally had to flee the campus. You had students uh, actually, like, putting flashlights into cars looking for him because he had the temerity to say, you know what, I'm not going to Participate support. in a racist movement. Yeah, he, there was this like weird day they have there where the white people no have to leave campus in solidarity with something something and he said you know what this is stupid um i'm a liberal i support multiculturalism and inclusion and diversity but i'm not going to leave the campus on the basis of some kind of like segregated fad like it's just stupid i'm not going to do it and on that basis uh, they treated him like he was um you know some kind of war criminal like it was just it was beyond parody and these are kids you know this is matt graining's uh alma mater like this is a very liberal school mm -hmm. and there's a lot of i mean they're not all pampered kids i don't want to pretend that everybody on campus is, is pampered but uh the people who have it hardest in our society the people who, who make minimum wage who um you know change diapers um you know in, in old age homes and like really have bad jobs and tough lives they're not the ones who are behind us the people who are behind us are the people going to Fifty and sixty and seventy thousand dollar a year universities, um, and so I do give some credence to that uh, that theory that was in that book. Um, as I said, I think it was the coddling of the American mind. Well, yeah, actually, uh, Peterson just tweeted out an interview with Jonathan Haidt. Yeah, uh, he's one of the authors. He's and co-authors, and he was one of them. Lukianov. He was the other one, and and. Uh, Looking the one you up. just mentioned is in charge of FIRE, F-I-R-E, which is an acronym for an organization that monitors uh, free speech on campuses. Now, it, we seem to be going down a really strange road, or maybe we've already arrived. The left, the left's influence on campus, I mean, you can't, and I'm hardly a conservative. I mean, people might try to, well, <laughs> I've been called all right lately because I'm, basically I'm standing 
for free speech. And it seemed it seems to me that back in the day when I was left, it, it seemed that the left was the ones that stood for free speech. Now the left is screaming, you can't speak here. Uh, you know, they're trying to block speakers like Peterson, Shapiro, who are, uh, you know, Shapiro is obviously a conservative. But uh, this idea that the indoctrination of our learning institutions is just, uh, you know, uh, dominated by leftist thinking and 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 professors and whatnot and if you come out as conservative you're ostracized immediately it seems this is not an isolated phenomenon in general the people who are the most passionate defenders of censorship are the people who believe they are winning or have won uh the culture war so if you looked at if you look at societies where, where Muslims uh, or religious Christians are very much in the majority or very much ascendant, you know, those are often places where they're going to try and, and, and censor or, um, or in some cases even imprison heretics. Uh, you know, the Inquisition, the historical Inquisition, was run in societies that were almost uniformly Christian. And if you were a Jew or a Muslim and said, you know what, I, I'm really not big on Jesus, <laughs> they weren't. They weren't like, well, okay, that's cool. You know, um, you know, let's ask someone else in the class what, what they think. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they they would, you know, they could kill you or exile you. It's, and um, the, the the you know, the conservatives uh, did a pretty good job of uh, shutting people up about things like uh, like evolution and things like birth control or you know, abolitionism, feminism, like this. Conservatives, when they feel like it, can be can be monstrous censors. But in the current climate, the conservatives have lost the culture war on, on a whole range of issues, uh, from gay marriage to, um, well, bioethics. Like in Canada, it has become borderline hate speech to be pro-life. Um, yeah. There are a lot of student societies and student clubs right. who, losing funding who re regard pro-life advocacy as a form of misogynistic hate speech. I now, believe I myself am pro-choice. I you know, I, as on most issues, I'm actually a social liberal, but if, if you have a religious Muslim or a religious Jew or a religious Christian, or even someone who's not religious but just believes life begins at conception, mm -hmm. uh, and they want to form a club on that basis, a university, I mean, more power to them. It's, but um, like I said, they're in the cultural minority, and as in all ages, the people who are winning the culture war and there's always a culture, whether, whether or not we use the term culture war, every society is always in a state of culture war. It's just the nature of, of, of human political organization. Uh, they are the people who want to who censor. Because if you're winning, you want to freeze the scoreboard. Right. But, uh, and the best way to freeze the scoreboard is by saying you're not allowed to score any more goals. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the way you score goals in, in culture or politics is, is by communicate, communication and advocacy. So if your side's leading 3-2, you want to blow the whistle and say the game's over, right. uh, which is which is what people on both sides do. I mean, right now it's the left that's doing it, but plenty of times in history that conservatives do it too. Fair enough. How do we create a conversation, or how do we how do we enter into a, a, a productive conversation if we're always worried about, uh, you know, I mean, you can't criticize the, the religions. Uh, or you know, be subject to being a you know su subject to hate speech laws or what have you. I mean, we we've got some serious issues here. The left and right got some serious issues they need to iron out. Especially when you consider that the moderate middle is just is mute, and and men and women it seems to again the extremes are uh, on the on the tail end of the distributions. But, but there's many conversations that we need to enter into, and if we're worried about uh, our free speech, then how do, how do we get around that? How, like, how do we foster a, a healthy discussion? I think uh, these things are cyclical, and, and the usual pattern is that um, all revolutions eat their own, right? right. Um, uh, the Bolsheviks destroyed the Mensheviks, and then even within the Bolsheviks, the old guard was consumed by the new. Uh, in the French Revolution, um, you know, the, the, the period of extremism within the French Revolution uh, was catalyzed because um, French revolutionaries started uh, killing each other, and some of the survivors—not all of them, but some of the survivors—says, "Hey, look, this is this is kind of crazy," and that's now happening uh, among the left. You know, I think earlier in the show you described yourself as a leftist who became disillusioned with some of the tactics and the dogmatism of, of the modern left. Uh, Quillette 
where I work, you know, half our writers fall into that category. Uh, many of my writers uh, still describe themselves as leftists. They're just completely disenchanted with some of the tactics, political tactics used by the left. And and that's more and more and more you see that. Uh, you know, just to give you a micro example. This this battle that's taking place between transgender activists and so-called TERFs, which that's an acronym that uh, is a term of abuse, which it's described describes feminists who believe, for instance, that um, that people who are male-bodied should not be allowed to work at rape crisis centers, oh, or they should they should not be put uh, amidst the female population in a prison. Like, oh. and so there's this battle, and this is a battle with, between leftists, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the trans so-called trans versus turf battle is um, is very much a battle within the left, and it's become very shrill to the point that there have been some episodes um, where there have been like real fistfights, and you have male-bodied people. Uh, who are beating up women who don't agree with them. And you do have some people on the left who are saying, look, this is ridiculous. This has gone too far. You know, we're having fistfights over pronouns. And mm-hmm. out of scenes like that, you get people who say, this has got to stop. So it's not people like me who, who, who are sort of observers to all this, who have the moral capital to come in and say, hey, you guys, you know, it should be about free speech and due process and the Enlightenment and classical liberals. They don't care what I have to say. What they do care about is if they go to a protest or a rally and they see their friends being physically intimidated because they're not using the right pronouns, that's a problem. And and that's when they start to fix the problem is when the um, it starts to, as I say, the revolution starts to eat itself and um, then they get motivated to fix it. Jonathan Kay is my guest, the former editor-in-chief of The Walrus. He still contributes to the National Post. Jonathan, uh, I've I got a list here. Newsweek, The New Yorker, Salon, The New Republic, Harper's Magazine, LA Times, The Weekly Standard, The Literary Review of Canada, The National Interest, and New York Times. Have I missed anything where your publications are, are getting some pub? Oh, I should say happy birthday also. It was your birthday Thank yesterday, you. no? Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure all of those publications still exist. <laughs> okay. uh, I should say, in, in terms of the United States, the publications that I've contributed to most over the last year or so have been Atlantic Magazine, uh, Foreign Affairs, and Foreign Policy. Uh, those are the three publications that I've been contributing to in the United States because those are the ones that I feel are, are, are centrist. Um, you know, I... I think, you know, I've written for, I wrote for Harper's once. I don't think Harper's would, would publish anything of mine these days. It's, it's pretty left-wing. Although, interestingly, even even the, the, the editor of Harper's was taken to task on CBC uh, because he didn't sing from the right songbook uh, on, on, on the Me Too movement. Uh, you know, the New York, books, New York Review of Books, a fantastic publication for which I've never written, um, you know, they they were taken to task because they they had the gumption to publish something by Gian Gomeshi. Uh, New York Magazine, you know, quite a liberal uh, publication. They were taken to task because Daphne Merkin, who who I just interviewed for Colette, uh, you know, she wrote an article um, basically taking Woody Allen's side on the question of uh, of sexual assault allegations. So, yes, I still do write for a lot of American publications, but. The ones I choose to write for tend to be the ones that are still centrist. Uh, but as you said earlier, it's a diminishing uh, number of publications. And uh, and what I really enjoy most is, is developing Quillette, um, a, you know, a team that I really respect. I have a great boss. Uh, we believe in classical liberalism. It's, it is true that there aren't that many publications that... Uh, that adhere to that, but we're one of them. And uh, as I said before, it's helped restore my faith in journalism. What's your take on the Me Too movement and this latest uh, Gian Gameshi sighting with the, what he had a three thousand word essay or something? I didn't read it yet. Yeah, but. lengthy piece. Um, look, everyone I talk to says that the Me Too movement was was necessary. Uh, it was a morally urgent phenomenon, and. Um, Especially people I know who, who you know, I'm middle-aged, so I, I have friends and colleagues who, who have uh, female children who are already in the workforce. They're already in their late teens or, or 20s. 
and and the stories they come back with are really bad like women often are mistreated mm. uh you know sometimes in, in really bad ways but often just in sort of everyday ways that are you know sort of the verbal equivalent of, of ass pinching right mm-hmm. um so I, I do think this movement is necessary and uh some of the stories that came out of it some of the conversations that came out of it were really really necessary the fact that harvey weinstein was able to do what he did for decades is just is, is absolutely disgusting mm. the problem is um as is often the case, there's, there's very little moral nuance between somebody like Harvey Weinstein and somebody who might have done something a thousand times less worse. Well, yeah, uh, I think we saw where, uh, who was it in Hollywood there that, you know, was kind of ranking sins type of thing and saying, you know, a pedophile is not the same as, you know, a lewd comment in the office type of thing. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but... Uh, you know, and taking, that person got raked over the coals. Uh, absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. So you get people raked over the coals for, for making the kind of moral distinctions we make in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know? um, uh, so, again, this happens to all movements. Uh, and sometimes you just see people who are just flat out falsely accused. It's rare, but it does happen. Stephen Galloway at UBC, University of British Columbia, is an example of that. Famous author who, um, who was attacked with just completely fictitious allegations of rape. Steve Pagan? Uh, so, I'm sorry? Steve Pagan? Steve Pakin, uh, I mean, in his case, the allegation, uh, so Steve Pakin is a, is a prominent broadcaster uh, here in, in Toronto, uh, and in his case, the allegation was that he propositioned uh, a woman um, and said that he'd get her on air if she had sex with him. This is a complete, I mean, for anybody who knows Steve, uh, I won't get into the details here, uh, but it was just, everybody knew it was BS. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's rare, but people do get falsely accused. Gian Gomeshi is an interesting case because, by his own admission, in this article he wrote from the Review of Books, his He's behavior really was bad. Like, he acted like a jerk. Um, you know, he wasn't, he was never convicted of a crime, uh, but, um, you know, he'll probably never work again in Canadian journalism. Was the New York Review of Books correct to run this essay by him? It's reasonable for people to debate about it, but I feel very uncomfortable that people will opt for essentially de facto censorship as a form of punishment, because once that becomes the norm, that people who are accused of bad things even if they haven't been convicted, that they should never be heard from again in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a creepy prospect. Um, you know, this, a lot of people didn't want Stephen Galloway to, to say another word in public after he was accused at University of British Columbia, but we now know that those the charges against him were completely fictitious. So uh, if that principle had been pursued, uh, you know, a completely innocent guy would have been shut up for the rest of his life. And one of Canada's best novelists, and he did say his piece. He wrote a long piece for the National Post a couple of months ago. Now, he was and silent every- for a long time after his accusation, though, correct? For about two years, he didn't right. say anything right. on his lawyer's advice. Imagine living that way under accusations, false accusations, and then having to keep your mouth shut or choosing to keep your mouth shut for that long. Wow. And, um, and amazingly, um, there are still people, a very small handful of conspiracy theorists in Canada who's, who still maintain that that no, the investigators were all wrong, that Galloway uh, was a rapist, and, and they still go on social media and, and say these things. Uh, they seem to believe they live in a world where libel laws don't apply. Uh, I have a feeling that that world may come to a crashing end uh, in not so long. I'm, I'm glad you brought up conspiracy theories. You wrote a book on it, didn't you? I did. What's your problem with people that are buy into conspiracy theorists? Somebody used to call me a conspiracy theorist for, for well, I've, I've been in the hemp business for a long time, and there was an action. It's not a theory. It was con- a conspiracy against hemp for crying out loud. That 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 that's history. But I mean, you wrote a book on it, and and I think you focused on nine eleven. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. So yeah, it, it, the book is dated because it came out in two thousand eleven, uh, okay. which is. It's only seven years ago, but um, it's, it's, that's a long time. I mean, right. it's, you know, we live in the Trump era now, and <laughs> I, I, I described Trump in the book as this, this crazy guy who was a birther and 
uh, and whatnot. And then, you know, now he's president of the United States. So, uh, it's, it's, it's a different world. Mm. One thing that has changed is it's harder for conspiracy theorists to back down and not lose face. So when you talk about the people who still believe that Galloway is guilty, mm. I don't know that they actually still believe Galloway is guilty. What, what is the case, rather, is they spent the last two years just tweeting incessantly their, their certainty that Galloway is guilty. And then we now have this report from a former British Columbia Supreme Court justice, um, her last name is Boyd, B-O-I-D, saying that, that Galloway never raped anybody and... <sighs> It's very embarrassing if you're a novelist or a poet who has has spent the last two years or two and a half years maybe uh, just tweeting about how this is the crime of the century and oh it turns out there was no crime at all. It's humiliating to then go on Twitter and say, ah, you know what, you know those 875 tweets I did about how Gallery is guilty. Turns out it's, I was wrong. Like that's that's mortifying. So it's much easier to say. Um, you know what, the whole system is rigged and, and everyone's a sexist. And, um, and maybe they even believe it. Uh, conspiracy theorists uh, convince themselves of things that simply aren't true. Mm -hmm. uh, on that same line of thinking, you interviewed Alex Jones, which I think is wildly entertaining and, and crazy as a batshit crazy. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not a huge fan. I don't watch his stuff all the time. I just think, uh, you know, everyone's got a, the right to a, his opinion, and he is aggressive. You saw him accosting um, some. Uh, who was it? Uh, oh, the last ca um, congressman. He got in his oh, face. Uh, Rubio. Yeah, Rubio. <laughs> and Rubio didn't handle it well. And I think Alex Jones is absolutely hilarious. He's a little bit of a of a, a pest, and he kind of beats up on people. But uh, you know, how did how did your interview with Alex go? with Alex went, well, it's interesting. It's, it's described in the book, but one thing I'll say about Alex Jones is the big mistake he made from a PR point of view uh, is when he went after the parents of Sandy Hook uh, kids. Right, that's uh, what everyone always brings up. That, yeah, as, as maybe many people will know, there was this uh, horrifying conspiracy theory, completely untrue, of course, that, that said that uh, the Sandy Hook uh, murders never happened and that the whole thing was staged, and that the parents of these dead kids were somehow complicit. And apparently, to this to this day, apparently, the parents of, of, of these kids sometimes get phone calls. Um, wow. You know, even as they're, they're mourning their children, Jeez. people who watched Alex Jones' show and saying, "Oh, it's it's all nonsense." So, so Alex Jones has done some really horrible things. Mm -hmm. None of that had happened at the time I interviewed him. Okay. And and he was just going off about the Lusitania and um, the frogs the turning gay. And, you know, like the standards of. <laughs> But what I what I noted about him, and this is true of, of many of many of the most successful conspiracy theorists, they straddle this uh, this no man's land between sanity and insanity. Mm -hmm. So they're sane enough to to write books and have a radio show. They're sane enough to be functional, but they're not quite sane enough to live in the the world that you and I inhabit. Um, so uh, another guy who would fall into that category is a guy named um, David Icke. Um, so this, this weird, it's, I, unfortunately he's also an anti-Semite, I think, but he had this crazy conspiracy theory about lizard people, and he'd have, you know, he'd give, I don't know if he still does it, he'd give lectures where thousands of people would attend. And, uh, and he, he inhabited that weird no-man's land between sanity and insanity. I think Alex Jones was there. There was a guy, I think Michael Rupert, he wrote a famous 9-11 conspiracist book called Crossing the Rubicon. I interviewed him in Culver's, uh, where was it? Where in, in California somewhere. Uh, he committed suicide, I was kind of sad, uh, a few years after I interviewed him. Uh, and he, he also, he lived in this weird no-man's land. Uh, those, that is often where some of the most successful conspiracy theorists live. Um, because as I say, they can, you know, they can run Twitter accounts and Facebook groups and write books. Uh, they're functional, but their hold on reality is is not consistent with uh, what you and I would regard as, as a 100% sane frame of mind. I, I think a lot of that stuff is just an act. It's just like a, having a stage personality. You know what? I mean, I, I've done a radio show before. I am not... The, Jim Fannin on that radio show. I'm, I'm a radio host. I'm not, you know, I often say this too on social yeah, media. But I'm going to push back on that. The reason I'm going to push back uh, is, I, yeah, I agree with you. Like, if you're a radio host, you have to have, like, you have to have a, a big personality for broadcast media. 
But some of these, the reason I'm pushing back in the case of conspiracy theorists is I've met people like Michael Rupert or there's a guy named Richard Gage who's a big 9-11 conspiracy theorist. They don't make a lot of money. Like like Richard Gage, this guy, I think he still runs a group called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. You know, he travels, I think he still travels around the whole country, speeches about uh, how the fall of the World Trade Center was an uh, inside job. Yeah, it's not. He's not like Alec Jones, where he's 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 got millions of followers. Like he, you know, he lives out of a suitcase. And uh, I, I, for somebody like that, I don't think it's an act. Because if it is an act, then you know what's what's the payoff, right? Right. If you're a radio host, um, you know, you've at least got. I, I don't presume to know how much every radio host makes, but usually it's enough to pay a mortgage if it's a full-time job. That's Barely. not the case for most conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Jonathan K is my guest. Jonathan, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I've kept you way too long, but uh, just on the way out, I, I don't want to um, get off the phone. I got to actually go show a house and get them trying to make a living. But uh, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, Deborah So, Wrong Speak, and uh, the new podcast. First of all, I love Deborah So. Um, uh, just, uh, you know, a powerful woman, beautiful, articulate. Uh, on Joe Rogan, I think that was a great spot for her to kind of get some exposure, even though Rogan really didn't let her talk all that much. Um, and <laughs> yeah, would you please yeah. tell a three, her... A three-hour show, and uh, <laughs> I think Deborah said about 40, 45 words. Or yeah, <laughs> and uh, I am just so charmed by her voice, if you can believe that. She just got this really sultry voice. Uh, tell me how that's going, and what do you, what do you expect to that to grow into? So, yeah, so the, that pod, um, podcast is called Wrong Speak. Uh, if you use iTunes or Stitcher or any of the 800 programs that people listen to podcasts on, you can download it. We've only done four, uh, there's four episodes we've done in the last couple of months, right. but we've got three more coming out in the next uh, couple of weeks, including one is a great show with David Frum. Uh, one is we're doing it on this turf versus trans thing um, oh, okay. that we've been talking about. Right. Uh, and at least one, maybe two more episodes. So these are all things we've recorded. Uh, Deborah is now, she's not just the host of Wrong Speak, she also does a lot of the content production. Uh, she is the, the brains uh, uh -huh. behind the operation. Um, I just, I go on and ask dumb questions and she answers them. <laughs> as, as, as you may know, she's, so she's a PhD in yeah. neuroscience, and so yeah. she's very well placed to answer, mm -hmm. to address a lot of the issues we talk about that arise in academia, um, whether mm -hmm. it's in the, you know, uh, sexual orientation or... Uh, psychiatric issues. We've had a show on James Moore. We talked about autism, stuff right. like that. So yeah, she's a great talent, and um, we're probably going to do wrong speak until she outgrows me and uh, goes off and gets her own show in Hollywood or something. <laughs> well, I think she's great and, and, and a strong woman. There's nothing sexier than a strong woman, and she has been able to stand her ground and say hell no to anyone that's come by and say, you know what, you can't say that. I mean, she is trained and, and holds a degree in that area, um, you know, and, and it's uh, it's nice to see, you know, a woman with that type of uh, knowledge and strength and articulation well, you know, to be. Before we before we sign off, I should say that um, as a Canadian, the Canadian media landscape is actually, I would say, dominated by the smartest the smartest people. Certainly, the ones who are bravest are, are women. Mm. Uh, Christy Blashford at the National Post. Um, uh, I would put, you know, not, a lot of people don't like her, but uh, Peggy Wente of the Globe and Mail, who I often disagree with, but she actually, you know, she has the she has the balls to say things that mm -hmm. 99 percent of people wouldn't. Uh, my own mother, Barbara Kay, also at the National Post, she's great. Um, you know, the Literary Review of Canada is uh, is run by a, a strong, smart woman, um, Adrian Batra, the the editor in chief of the uh, Toronto Sun. Toronto Sun's a tabloid, and it, you know, it's, not, it's not exactly the uh, Times literary supplement, but it's, uh, it's got the fact you know, that anybody is going against the party line on a lot of issues. Uh, you have to have a lot of backbone to do it, and uh, Adrian, Barbara, Deborah, uh, Christy, uh, it's, it's a small group of people, and here in Canada, it's mostly women who are doing the heavy lifting, pushing back against political correctness. Uh, so we owe them uh, a great vote of thanks. And my own boss, by the way, she's an Australian. Claire Lehman. Uh, Claire, yeah. Claire Lehman, super smart, and uh, 
if it weren't for her, I think I'd just be running my own board game cafe because <laughs> I have lost faith in journalism. So there you go. Jonathan Kay, I appreciate your time. How can people get a hold of you if they want us to shoot you a message? Uh, just come to my house and uh, <laughs> knock on the door. Which is kind of, no, uh, well, you know, on Twitter, I'm J-O-N-K-A-Y. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, or actually, uh, I'm also, if you want to pitch me for Quillette, I'm at john at quillette.com. Awesome. I'm going to send you a piece in the next couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about this crazy person you interviewed me. Yeah. Brother, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. We could talk for hours and hours. I know you don't have that kind of time, and i got to run too, but uh, I, I'm going to look to touch you up in the next few months. Maybe we'll do this again. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Take care. Bye. That's John Kay, everyone. Uh, we had some uh, technical difficulty getting him in today, um, but we made it, and uh, he had his own mic for the speakerphone, and uh, we had to go Facebook Live, which means... I'll come to you later with the YouTube. Um, oh, it looks like we got... No, we actually are uh, already broadcasting the current version with the good audio with my $17,000 microphone. So, uh, nothing more booked. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to search down, uh, chase down a couple more personalities to talk to uh, over the phone. Uh, Mayor Jimmy D, um, Hart goes out to you brother i hope you get better soon he was my uh latest victim to cancel but obviously he's in treatment for hodgkin's lymphoma after he got over the pericarditis i feel your pain heart attack pericarditis ouch <laughs> recovering from my own little incident there uh so uh jim diodati's not going to be able to get in till after the election he is rerunning for uh, mayor of Niagara Falls and it's 216 I actually have to go show a shack and try and make some dough so we can continue talking to uh, people like Jonathan K he is a freelance writer the editor of Quillette which is the brainchild of Claire Lehman out of Australia he does wrong speak with Dr. Deborah So who I'm totally enchanted with uh, beautiful woman and bright as hell and man She's got the strength to stand up to uh, anyone that says, you know what, you can't talk about the differences between men and women. Guess what? We're different. Equal? Wrong. <laughs> We're not equal. Can't say that or else you're a misogynist. You're a woman hater. The same thing as if you say, I'm pro-life. Yeah, well, you just hate women then. We can't even have a conversation about it. You know, when is life? When can you abort life? Like you can, you can abort a life like in nine months as long as it's in the womb. There's no law against it. I didn't even know that. Anyways, I'm Jim Fannin. Thanks for checking us out. You can follow me at Jim Fannin on Twitter. Obviously, you're on YouTube now if you're watching this. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel as well where we put up some, well, all the interviews are there. We do rock stars, politicians, and today we did an author and a writer in Jonathan Kay. Have a great day, everyone. Oh, real estate at teamniagara.ca, baby. If you want to sell your house, I got uh, exactly 11 minutes to get to my next appointment. Peace. Say goodnight now. Goodnight now.